Okay, fans, how you doing today? We got a good show for you today. We got a special guest. His name is Horace Cooper. He's the co-chairman of Project 21. He taught constitutional law at George Mason, and you've heard him on pretty much every radio show in the country and seen him on your TV. So, uh, Mr. Horace Cooper, how you doing? It's great to be on the podcast. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, so I, I just want to get right into it. I want to start with uh, Project 21. It's a movement that's, you know, for black conservatives. And um, here in Hollywood, the term coming out now kind of applies to closeted conservatives. I mean, coming out in Hollywood can kind of ruin your career. So I'm wondering when you became a conservative and did you catch a lot of heat from friends and family for this? So I actually um, was born and raised in Texas. And when I was growing up, um, the people around me, in particular my grandmother, um, helped to impress upon me certain attitudes and strategies. My grandmother uh, grew up during the Great Depression, um, and she had nine children. Wow. Uh, of her nine children, seven of them completed their college degrees when they became old enough. In, in the case of my mother... She did not uh, start college until after her and my father were married, and she didn't stop until she had her Ph.D. I got to learn at a very early age of the importance of education. Yes. My grandmother regularly bragged that she had never received food stamps and was not a beneficiary of public uh, largesse. She was self-sufficient. In fact, when I was in junior high, we uh, went to see her one day, and we got to see her brand new, what we referred to then, which was highly uncommon, her brand new brick house that mm. she had paid for in cash. Wow. She paid that for in cash. Um, and, but my grandmother wouldn't be able to do it. My grandmother wouldn't be able to do it. I remember how she saved... Uh, what were called green stamps. Whenever you went to the grocery store, you got these stamps mm -hmm. and she would collect them. I remember as a kid how she picked up uh, bottles. Uh, there was a time when we didn't have plastic bottles for our soft drink. We had glass bottles. And she would collect them and she would turn them in. She was a person that had an iron that she used so she could reuse aluminum foil. My point about her was she was a person who thought she controlled her circumstance, she controlled her destiny, and she wanted us, her, her children and her grandchildren, to accept that and understand it. And so the weird thing for me is I had to come to Washington to find out that everything that my grandmother told me and everything that my mother affirmed that my grandmother told me was in some way a contradiction, quote, because we were black. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right off the bat, I'm not a conservative. Um, but it, it, what you're talking about there is personal responsibility. Education, I come from an education family. My mom and dad were both teachers. My sister's a teacher. And why are these two things, personal responsibility and education, not stressed anymore it's like it's like 
personal responsibility is almost a dirty word at this point. Oh, no, absolutely. In fact, we are in a societal circumstance where that is a concept that is mocked. It is thought that if you tried, if you apply yourself, you're the foolish one. It isn't just that personal responsibility isn't encouraged any longer. It's actively discouraged. My grandmother... My grandmother thought nothing of when we went to stay with her. Um, um, sometimes we would go for three years. My grandmother thought nothing of coming into the room at about 5 a.m., sometimes earlier, to tell us that we were getting up and we had chores. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, fun times that we had, my grandmother didn't have a washing machine. We used washboards, and we were little five, six, and seven years of age, um, we were tiny. And yeah. we, it was hard for us to maneuver with those washboards. Do you they know what my that, grandmother said? They call that child abuse now, making a five-year-old do that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till you hear this. What my grandmother said was, if you agree to do some extra chores, I will let you earn enough money to buy smaller washboards. <laughs> and my brother and I eagerly jumped at this chance and she ordered them. She loved the Sears Roebuck catalog and she ordered them. And sure enough, these smaller washboards came that were much easier for us to work with. And we were so (laughs) eager, but to get there, we had to do extra work around the house. So your reward, your reward for chores that works now. Yeah. Your reward for chores was to lessen the strain of the chores. Allowance money so you could lessen the strain of it. That's terrific. <laughs> um, so, but, but it's an attitude of success yeah. that really would really be remarkable if you thought all black Americans, if I thought all black Americans came with this attitude. That would be such a change. Do you remember uh, there was a, a television show with the, the Wayan brothers uh that came on in the um, the 1990s. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. On, this t- on this TV show, one of the regular skits was a Caribbean family and their work skills. And one of my most favorite skits was Caribbean family working on the airplane. And they were the flight attendants and they were the pilots, but they were also doing laundry. They were doing all manner of other tasks and they were asking the passenger, so what's your job? And the passenger would say their job, what's your other job? No, no, I'm a full-time banker. (laughs) That's your only job? What a remarkable idea that they were making fun of that there were Caribbean blacks who had a really strong reputation for a good work ethic. It would be amazing if not only black America was seen as having that because we once did, Mm -hmm. but that we also lived it. Yeah. I mean, not just black America, all of America, that would be a a good ethic to, to get through all of America. Um, to, to move things into, um, uh, more contemporary times, what's going on right now. It, it, it's pretty charged out there, right? And I've noticed that the conservative movement right now is really leaning on black conservatives like yourself recently for commentary. 
And to me, it's obvious, and it's because if a white man challenges the narrative of the left at all right now, he's immediately slapped with the racist label. And it's an effective strategy to dominate the conversation because most people, frankly, are terrified of being labeled that way. Like, I frankly, I don't, I don't care what people call me because I know who I am. Um, however, how can the leftist agenda be, be defeated if an entire segment of the population is afraid to speak up? So you are right on point. Let me observe this. If there were so many racists in America and being racist was easy and simple and welcomed, there would be plenty of people acting um, as if they were proud to be called a racist. It is ironic to me that the, the claim that someone is a bigot or a racist carries so much power and people don't recognize that that's because there are so few bigots and racists right. that we actually have to end up attacking people who aren't. Right. Um, the second thing that I would say is that it is easy. It is easy to use a, an attack on the basis of race rather uh, than to have a real constructive conversation. So I want to say something to you that I think even you might be surprised to hear. And sure. that is in 2019, 21 Americans were killed in lightning strikes. In 2019, 10 black men were killed by officers who right. were white. Right. Twice as many people died in what everyone understands is a super rare, freakish event. Right. And there has been no national march to stop the lightning strike problem that's happening in America. Sure. There is no move to get the Senate to call, to skip its August recess to deal with it. Right. Here's the truth. The truth is, while every life is valuable, while every life must be um, honored, it is not true that there is an epidemic, there is a systemic, there is a a significant even problem of white officers killing uh, unarmed black people. It isn't happening. It is extremely rare. And I repeat, twice as many Americans died from lightning strikes than from this. That right. should contextualize what's really going on. Right. Well, I mean, the problem, part of the problem is when you see what happened to George Floyd, I mean, that was horrible. I mean, everybody was appalled by that. It was, it was disgusting. There's no justification for it. But the media will use something like that to drive a narrative that, that divides people and puts us against each other. And meanwhile, they're stealing four $4 trillion out of the treasury. Now you have, um, you know, Black Lives Matter in the past week has gotten $235 million from corporate America. Um, you know, companies like Google and Nike and Walmart of all companies. I mean, these companies don't give a crap about black people and you can't convince me they care about any people. They just care about their own bottom line. But my question is, is Black Lives Matter now the most powerful political group in the world? And what does that mean for this defund the police movement? What what's going to happen? Defund the police, uh, by the way, in addition to my upcoming book, 
um, how Donald Trump is making Black America, excuse me, how Trump is making Black America great again. That's coming out the Fourth of July. I have a chapter called "Stop, Don't Shoot," but I also have a piece in National Review um, that says, uh, "Reform our cities, not our police." Defund the police is an extremely dangerous idea. I don't just mean the idea of eliminating the police. I think 95% of us get, if we the police, that would be a problem. Just imagine if we said banks, if you go in to take money from a bank that's not yours, we're no longer going to make that a crime. We're no longer going to have law enforcement present. We're no longer going to use guns to protect them. Everyone understands there would be a rush on the banks. Law enforcement mm-hmm. does for our communities what we would have to do in the Wild West when you had isolated locations. It was your job to solve any marauder that came in. Our law enforcement save us from having to pick up that kind of skill and that kind of responsibility. If we eliminated them, there would be a wholesale onslaught wherever those communities are that are no longer protected. But even defunding by transferring money that goes presently to law enforcement and putting it into other places is also dangerous. In our piece today, I wrote with John Yu, former uh, Deputy Attorney General, uh, U.S. Attorney General. We argue increased funding for our police. We want the federal government to offer grants in high crime areas, and we want local governments to match those. That instead, however, of having the police stretch thin, we argue something that has been put forward for about four or five years, why don't we have law enforcement stick to traditional crime enforcement? Coming right out of the Great Recession, a number of local governments and city governments and state governments decided, you know what? American taxpayers, they don't really like tax hikes. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna collect new fines. We're gonna assess new fees. Existing fines and fees are going to be doubled. You didn't uh, get your license plate renewed in time? Well, guess what? The, the fee for that is yeah. now going to be increased to do it. Yeah, infuriating. Poor and working class people, poor and working class people are particularly hard hit. Mm-hmm. We don't let the police enforce non-smoking bans. If you decide that you want to operate a limited stand and you haven't gotten a business license, actually, in the majority of jurisdictions in America, that's something law enforcement deals with. We argued in our piece today, let's get the police out of the taxation business, out of the revenue enhancement business, out of the social um, um, enforcement business, stick to robbery and rape and the other kinds of mayhem. When you see the police officer come, you know this isn't about you having to write a $250 check. This is actually about him assisting you. It will enhance your regard for law enforcement and it will put law enforcement in places where they're needed rather than where the city needs the revenue. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I mean, I, I consider myself somewhat of a libertarian, and and you're speak, speaking my language there with you know police running around giving tickets and fines. It's 
it's it's nonsense. That's not what they're supposed to be doing. And if you're talking about if what you want to do is limit um, police killings of unarmed people, what you need to do is improve the police, which requires training them more, which requires more yeah. money, not defunding. But um, I know I know you don't have much yeah. time, so I wanted to ask I wanted to ask one more question um, while I got you. Um, I've I've worked in for every day for 15 years in Compton, California. I know the communities very well. Um, and what I see, what I notice in the homes is that most of the homes, I'm saying most, are single parent homes. And the statistics show that 60% of black kids grow up without a dad. That's the number one correlating factor to whether or not a child will end up in prison. I personally believe the two biggest things that could be done to help the black community right now are ending the drug war to stop breaking up families. I don't know how you feel about that. But also doing things to incentivize families to stay together rather than what they do now, which is incentivize them to split up. So what, in your opinion, can government do to help heal black communities? So I actually disagree uh, about the uh, war on drugs. I think uh, one of the most hurtful things for our young people, uh, particularly unskilled, particularly minority, has been the idea that uh, you can step aside from your responsibilities and zone out, whether it's marijuana or even some of the uh, other tougher drugs. I actually think that we should uh, do a difference between Reggie Jackson and Michael Jackson. They're both black, they're both men. One we found had to work really, really hard and overcome challenges. Another was extremely talented and reached such an elite status that he could interact in an untoward way with a child and find himself free from any actual consequence. Right. The so-called war on drugs, if we lower that expectation, we think we're dealing with the Michael Jacksons, the elites, but we aren't dealing with the Michael Jacksons. We're dealing with the Reggie Jacksons, and the Reggie Jacksons actually need a father in the household, actually need a safe neighborhood, a person in their community who does not regularly consume uh, uh, drugs of any kind, recreational or otherwise. Too many inner-city black kids in particular are finding that they are being treated with the freedom and liberty of Michael Jackson when what they need are the limits and the restrictions of Reggie Jackson. All too often, we have opted out of the opportunity to say in people who are growing up six out of 10 without that role model, without a strong that you still should be free to do the same thing that the elites are able to do with impunity. Poor and working class people ought to be steered by society. Do we need a law to do it? Maybe, maybe not. But what we definitely don't need is license. What we don't need is approval. What we don't need is acceptance of it. And that's where we are in America today, an acceptance of behavior that for a significant number of people who go down that path, they do so in a harmful way. Last thing I'll say is this. John Stuart Mill said that if the bridge is about to fall out and you're about to cross, we should put a sign up to warn you that this bridge is rickety, but liberty is going to allow you to make the judgment of whether to cross the bridge. 
On the other hand, if the bridge actually is gone, then we can't just give you the liberty to cross. We actually have to interfere with your freedom to do so. If you're inner city, you're, you're, uh, there's no father figure in the household. Your mother may have graduated from high school, but has the reading skills of a fifth grader saying to you, you should be free to smoke crack or cocaine or any other controlled substance is the equivalent of saying there is no bridge run across. Gotcha. All right. I mean, I, I can't say I agree with all that, but um, so if that's not the way to help, what, what do you offer? How do we help? So, so instead of being concerned about the Boy Scouts, um, not allowing uh, gay men or gay children or even girls to participate, we ought to have been fighting to insist that organizations that had worked from the 20s, 30s, all the way to the 1980s to help provide role models in those households and families where they were desperately needed, they need to be returned, they need to be restored. Churches and their responsibilities, instead of saying you can't come to the public square, we actually need to be saying, let's start holding some of our social service events in those places. Let's get volunteers. When de Tocqueville came to America in the uh, early uh, 19th century, he observed how much private organizations and charitable organizations did things. We've embarked on a model since the 1960s that rejects that idea. And it Mm -hmm. says you can just pay some rich person, excuse me, some person a lot of money, and they're going to love your child. They're going to provide health care. Trillions have been spent on this idea. It It doesn't work. It never can. Now, yeah, they keep throwing money at the problem, and it doesn't solve the problem. So obviously money is not the answer to the problem. Um, You've you've been enlightening. I mean, I, the, some of the things you're saying, I'm I'm sure are things that most of America is not hearing right now. So I want to I want to give people a chance to hear those opinions. Um, you, you know, you're preaching a message that I'm sure a lot of people take issue with, and you're brave for saying these things. Is there anything you want to promote, or anything else you want to you want to get out there? Well, check us out on Twitter, Project Twenty One News. Uh, my book comes out on the uh, 4th of July week and how Trump is making how Trump is making black America great again and if you google my name Horace Cooper you'll see two new pieces one in Newsmax and one on National Review both addressing some of the current events that uh, America is discussing today okay excellent uh, on on that last thing how Trump is making black America great again i mean being a black conservative is one thing. Being a black Trump supporter is a whole nother thing. I mean, people like Kanye and Candace Owens, and I mean, they get killed for that. But there's no denying that he's done a lot of good things for black America. What is what is something that you can just put out there to people that he's done for black America that people have no idea about? So more pickup trucks have been um, acquired by black Americans in the three years of the Trump administration and the entirety of the eight years of the Obama administration. During the Trump administration, six consecutive records have been set for how many blacks are in the workforce and also the lowest level of unemployment. Four records were set by Mr. Obama for the highest 
level of unemployment since the records were being kept uh, since the 1960s. That's um, more black Americans, more black Americans also got to go see grandma and had a summer vacation in the first three years of the Trump administration under Obama. Blacks, just like everybody else, had what we called a staycation, a fancy little right. name for I'm broke and I can't go anywhere. Right. The real life experience of black America in the pre-years is nearly unprecedented. And you have to go back to the 1920s to see achievement and wealth creation in black America like you see now. That's a hundred year gap. Yeah. Yeah. It would just be nice, regardless of how you feel about Trump, if at least those kinds of facts were out there in the mainstream narrative so people could make up their own minds. Um, Horace, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, keep fighting the fight. All right. Thanks for having me on today. All right. You take care. All right. Excellent. All right, guys. Um, wow. He's he's a powerhouse, huh? Um, so he only had 20 minutes for us. Um, he's a busy man doing lots of interviews all over TV and radio. So, uh, I tried to get as much into that 20 minutes as I could. Now, typically our show's about an hour. Um, I could keep going, but I'm pretty sure you guys don't want to hear me ramble for 40 minutes. Um, you know, I, I, I'm getting tired of myself as it is. So, um, I can't say I agreed with everything Horace had to say, but I agreed with quite a bit of it and I'm glad what, what I do not like about America right now is that there is only one opinion that you are allowed to have. There's only one acceptable opinion. Now, I've never been that guy. I am not down with groupthink. I think it's disgusting. I think it's stupid. I think, I think it's for weak people. I want to hear both sides of an argument. I want to hear the facts. I want to know all the details, and then I want to make up my own mind. And if my opinion doesn't jive within the parameters of what the acceptable opinion is, well, I mean, go fuck yourself. That's how I feel about it. Like, we're all entitled to our own opinions. You know in your heart what kind of person you are. I know in my heart what kind of person I am. We should not allow others to shame us into buying narratives that we don't believe to be true. I marched for black people in the South, in the early part of, I'm sorry, in the 90s. I marched for gay rights out here in Los Angeles at the turn of the century. I've been very active on the grounds of equal rights. However, that said, it's now getting to the point where you cannot say a single thing about anything the left says without being called a bigot of some kind. You have to buy their narrative 100%. And it's good that there's some people out there, like Horace Cooper, regardless of what you thought about him, out there sharing a different message. And I hope you listened. I hope you took some of it in. Um, look, you can't, you can't deny his experience. You can't deny where he came from. You can't deny the things he, he learned, how he grew up. And that's the world, and that's the way he sees it. And you also cannot deny the facts that he handed out. Ideally, we would live in a society where cops never kill a single unarmed person. I don't know if that's realistic. Last year in 2019, we had the lowest amount of police killings of unarmed citizens ever. There were, I believe, nine black people and 20 white people. 
That's 29 people for a year. That's 29 too many, but it's the lowest ever, so it shows there's progress, and there's more progress to be made. So let's focus on how we can make more progress, but this idea that the police are evil um, and that we need to get rid of them or defund them, I don't know, man. I don't see how that helps the problem. I think if you defund the police, you give them less training, you're paying them less, you're attracting a lower quality of individual to the profession with less skills and less training, he's more likely to kill somebody. I mean, just play it through logically. Now, myself, as a libertarian, I got to tell you, I'm down with the abolish the police movement, but it's not for the same reason as these far left liberals are. I'm down with it because I recognize the fact that if you abolish the police, well, guess what? Now you can't make me pay my taxes because how are you going to arrest me? And if I'm not paying my taxes, well, now you've just taken the teeth out of all of government and libertarians like myself, now we get what we want. We get a complete reform of government. And I've recently taken to calling myself a libertarian um, only because I agree with more of their positions in the past couple of years of all these um, of all these debates that have come up than any other, but I will never consider myself a part of a um, political party. I don't like political parties. They encourage groupthink. They dumb you down. And more often than not, well, always when they get powerful enough, all they do is serve the master. They don't serve the people. They work to keep their own power and to enrich the elite. We all need to start thinking for ourselves, voting for ourselves, and taking the power back ourselves. So uh, I said I was going to end it there, and then I rambled because, hey, I'm apparently not a man of my word. But I'm going to wrap it up. I love you guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If not, I mean, come back tomorrow. I'm going to be back on with B and Rose. We'll be talking all your favorite parenting stuff and chopping it up and, and, and flirting with Miss Rose and having a good time. So uh, thanks for listening, and I will chat with you soon.